Trading at Schwab is now powered by Ameritrade, unlocking the power of Thinkorswim, the award-winning trading platforms loaded with features that let you dive deeper into the market. Visualize your trades in a new light on Thinkorswim Desktop with robust charting and analysis tools, all while you uncover new opportunities with up-to-the-minute market news and insights. Thinkorswim is available on desktop, web, and mobile to meet you where you are. It's built by the trading obsessed to help you trade brilliantly. Learn more at schwab.com slash trading. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, Matt Miller. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. All right, I've been looking to talk to this guy for a couple of days here. I need some perspective. I need a little bit of cynicism, maybe even a little bit of snark. And for that, I go to Cameron Kreiss, our macro man. He's a Bloomberg News. Cameron, you're out with a note today saying the yield curve says rate cuts are nearly a certainty. What do you mean by that? Well, I looked at the uh, front end of the yield curve. Uh, I mean, the two-year note uh, has obviously gone crazy ballistic <laughs> since the Silicon Valley Bank stuff um, hit the tape. And the inversion between the three-month sector and the two-year sector is now, you know, kind of hit 100 basis points uh, earlier earlier today. That's only the second time that's happened in the last 40 years. The other one was the very beginning of 2001, which is when the Fed actually cut rates kind of on the, on the first real trading day. Uh, of the year. And if you look at all times when three-month, two-year was inverted by at least 50 basis points, uh, the Fed has cut rates within six months on like 93% of those occasions. So statistically, we only get pricing like this when the Fed is about to make a a pretty swift turn. I guess one question, though, for you is, is inflation under control? I mean, we've had rate cuts from the ECB, from the Bank of England, and obviously from the Fed. You know, are they pretty much done? Uh, is, is inflation under control? Uh, at the moment, no. Uh, but in the future, uh, it, it, who knows? Uh, and that's, that's really the issue with, with all this banking sector stress, is you just don't know what the impact is going to be. Um, it, it, I mean, I think we can we can pretty clearly say it's not a 2008 situation because there's not all this toxic, you know, toxic waste on bank balance sheets. There's other kinds of waste, which is, you know, which is government issued uh, or government guaranteed uh, uh, debt. Um, but that's a slightly kettle, different kettle of fish because it's held in holding maturity um, uh, buckets, uh, and there are liquidity. Uh, measures in place so that banks can can obviously meet the needs of depositors um, who, who want their money. But I think the issue that Mr. Powell raised on Wednesday is the right one, which is that if we get the sort of significant tightening in credit conditions that seems likely 
as a result of all of this banking kerfuffle. And essentially, it's going to take the place of rate, of rate hikes uh, in, in, in um, restraining the growth of credit and, and ultimately, um, ultimately demand. So uh, it does make sense that the Fed has kind of shifted its perspective. Um, the market, I think, is sort of obviously leaning very, 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 very heavily towards this is a big deal uh, and the economy is going to enter a recession sort of post-haste, um, which then raises the question of why the equity market hasn't done more poorly on, on a broader basis uh, and and then we get to a more philosophical right. question. Yeah, a philosophical question of, you know, who's who's at the vanguard of, of economic analysis and who's sort of in the caboose. Um, you know, I, I'd remind you and listeners that the, the stock market reached new highs after the Fed first cut rates in 2007, um, and that obviously went pretty horribly wrong in the end. Even, right. Uh, you know, even though, you know, with the proviso that this is not a sort of a 2008 situation. And Cameron, on the recession discussion, I have a hard time kind of getting to a recession like a lot of folks are talking about. I've got, you know, still pretty darn near full employment. We had a good jobless print today, still I mean, this week below 200,000. We got the PMI numbers today coming in much stronger than expected. I don't know. I, I kind of feel like we can soft land this thing. What, what, what do you think? I think it's become a lot more difficult, um, given the stress in the banking sector. Okay. Uh, I think what we're probably going to see, uh, and I, again, um, this is something I've written, I think Powell alluded to it on Wednesday, is sort of the cumulative impact of tightening generally and credit tightening in particular is nonlinear. Uh, it kind of has no impact, no impact, no impact, and then an animal falls on your foot. Um, <laughs> Uh, if I can use sort of a Warner Brothers, a wily coyote type uh, type metaphor there, um, and I think that's the. It certainly looks like there's an enhanced risk that that's what's going to happen. Um, we don't know, uh, and so I think it makes sense to keep one's options open and maintain analytical flexibility and not be dogmatic about what the future looks like. Um, have a little humility about about the outlook. Um, what I think we can say though is that the market, the market pricing as it stands now in the fixed income market is one that is not a stable equilibrium. Either the Fed's going to have to deliver rate cuts um, and short rates are going to drop fairly soon, or the market's going to have to recalibrate the yield curve um, and the two-year yield's going to have to go quite a bit higher again um, because this sort of spread between the very short rate and, and the two-year Treasury is just not somewhere that, that it, can, it, can, it can last for very long. Um, for no other reason that leverage owners of the two-year yield have to, pay the shorts, have to pay the repo rate to finance their positions, and that's a big negative carry trade. And the one thing we know about fixed income operators is there's nothing they hate more than negative carry. <laughs> so one thing, though, it, I mean, you made the point about, you know, you've got the Fed tightening conditions as well. But, I mean, you go back to banks tightening conditions. And so I look ahead to the second half of the year. You can see these two paths kind of diverging or uh, converging, rather, onto the American spender. And then there's going to be a lot of reason for people to pull back their purse strings, not to mention the fact that the employment market could start looking really very, very tricky. So, I mean, looking ahead to that, do you see that, you know, there's a substantial potential for things to be a lot tougher and for fixed income to get a lot more expensive later on? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. There's the potential for things to get a lot tougher. Um, 
And if that happens, then yeah, the pricing that's already implicit in the yield curve will come to pass. But then you have to ask the question of what's the you know what's the stock market still doing up on the year? Um, you know, in, in, in an environment where things are bad enough and people sort of retrench quickly enough um, that these rate cuts that are in the price are merited, that's not a situation where the earnings outlook is anything but awful. Um, I, I would I, I would think so. There is this sort of dissonance between what's being priced across various aspects uh, of, uh, you know, of, of the financial market universe. Cameron, just about 30 seconds. How concerned are you about the U.S. banking system? Uh, a lot more so than a couple of weeks ago. Uh, I, I think if, if everyone agrees that it's healthy, then it's healthy. But if everyone thinks that it's in trouble, then the nature of fact, fractional reserve banking means that it kind of almost becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy, particularly in this environment of social media where people can sort of fan the flames of fear yep. um, without facts really intruding on the narrative. <laughs> okay. Cameron Christ, macro strategist, uh, Bloomberg News, and most notably on his uh, CV, uh, he's a graduate of Duke University. What happened to our hoops team this year, dude? Schwab Trading is now powered by Ameritrade to give you a new, elevated trading experience tailor-made for trader minds. Go deeper with Thinkorswim, the powerful, award-winning trading platforms now at Schwab. Unlock support from the Trade Desk, our team of passionate traders who live and breathe trading like you do. And sharpen your skills with an expanding library of online education crafted just for traders. All designed to help you trade brilliantly. Learn more at schwab.com trading. Success is more than a destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's dedication. It's fortitude. And it's the work, passion, and grit inside of us that comes before all recognition. That's what Stiefel has been doing for over 130 years. And it's why Stiefel is one of the fastest growing wealth management firms in the country. And Stiefel goes beyond traditional wealth management to offer you a full suite of banking services, direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises, and a leading middle market investment bank. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel has built a company and culture unlike any firm on Wall Street. Because success is the drive it takes to keep pushing. It's the passion to keep investing. It's the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Find a financial advisor at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel, Nicholas & Company, Incorporated. Member SIPC and NYSE. You're listening to The Team. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app. Or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts. Block, obviously, in the news this week. Uh, Hindenburg Research out with a short seller report on this company. The company vows to fight. I need the latest on this name. And to do that, we turn to Jenny Serene, finance reporter with Bloomberg News. I believe she's in London somewhere. I'm not really sure. Is she over there, Jennifer? Do you I think she is. Yeah, okay. All right. Uh, so, Jenny Serene, thanks so much for joining us. Give us the latest here because Block, uh, Jack Dorsey, all that kind of stuff, they're going to fight this thing, aren't they? Yeah, no, that's exactly right. Um, they're out with, I mean, a, a relatively concise statement given um, the length of the Hindenburg Research uh, report that was put out on them. But yeah, they've vowed to fight it. They've said they'll work with the SEC to do so. Um, and they seem pretty ready to dispute the, the claims that were brought against them. Can you just summarize for us what are the claims? What's the thesis of this short? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, it's interesting. I think there was a lot of um, stuff that 
that investors likely already knew in the report. Um, and so I think the biggest new piece was really just um, the idea that a lot of fraud and a lot of criminal activity could be going over the cash app network specifically. So this is like a person to person payments app that, you know, rivals the likes of Venmo or Zelle um, and Hindenburg and, um, you know, a bunch of public records requests and, and a lot of other deep dive research says that they've found evidence of, of widespread fraud on this network. And so that that's really, I think, what investors are worried about and, and really keying in on. I mean, the thing I really want to know about this is where the regulators are on this and what their thinking is, because, you know, we've certainly seen concerns raised about Zelle, for example. And, you know, you wonder if this, these, these new payment systems, these new ways of transferring money super quickly from one to another, it's, they've been around for a little while. So I feel like the regulators really have gotten a bit flat footed on this. Yeah, it's interesting because I think, um, you know, with Cell, a lot of the complaints and, and consumer criticism is that um, fraudsters have seized it and convinced consumers to send money to the wrong person, essentially. And so in that instance, you know, it's really um, a fraudster says, hey, you know, send me this. And, and a person might think it's their aunt or their uncle or their friend. And, and it turns out to be a scammer. So that's one area. Um, but really what this report shows is um, that there was, um, you know, use of this network by um, sexual traffickers and, and just all sorts of really a, a criminal seedy underbelly that that's really being alleged here. And so I think there's very different kinds of, of fraud and, and malfeasance that could be occurring. And regulators, I have to imagine, are, are looking closely at this and, and kind of um, taking a, a closer look because I think, um, you know, a lot of these fintechs have popped up and, and you know, and unfortunately, you oftentimes see bad actors really looking to seize a lot of new technologies. Have we heard from any big shareholders for Block here? Because the stock has obviously been under significant pressure since this report came out. That's actually a good point. We ha- we haven't. Um, uh, no one has uh, swooped into their defense just yet. You know, I think a lot of the analyst community, at the very least, um, they're really trying to, to draw lines between what is a known issue and, and what Block has been publicly out there trying to fix. You know, they're one of many payment providers that have seen a slowdown in volumes, for instance, and then they've got different strategies in place to fix that. Um, and then what is the new stuff? And I think a lot of this, you know, potential criminal activity and then the allegations there, that's really what I think analysts and the, and the investor community more broadly is trying to understand maybe before um, sticking their neck out. Right. I'm just looking at the ANR function on the Bloomberg Terminal for analyst rating recommendations. 40 buys, 11 holds, and two sells. So, Jennifer, it looks like they're still kind of supporting the, the name. Yeah, they haven't got the news yet maybe. or <laughs> <laughs> So, Jenny, I mean, I guess what are next steps here for the company? I mean, I imagine that we, um, or I guess we hope we've reached out for additional comment and really had to have them address some of these allegations more directly. Um, the statement that we got last night was really, um, uh, I would say, you know, obviously very forceful in terms of promising legal action and, and really trying to take a stand against it, but not really addressing the specific claims. And I think, you know, in the cases in the past where you've seen these big short seller reports, you often do see company responses that are, you know, tens of pages long and, and very, um, you know, detailed. And so I feel like that's, or we hope that's what we'll get. Um, you know, notwithstanding that, I think they have earnings coming up in a couple of weeks and, and they'll absolutely have to address it then. So, um, you know, I think we're just going to have to wait and see how the company wants to respond from here. Do you see any other knock-on impact into any other sectors of the financial services industry from this? I definitely think, you know, especially with players like Zelle and Venmo, this just ratchets up the scrutiny on those guys even more because I think, um, you know, there's always a concern that what, you know, 
where there's one issue, there's many. And so um, you'll probably see regulators looking more closely at all of these e-money providers and, and looking for ways that they can make sure that, you know, if there is criminal activity, that they can catch it and tamp down on it and, and that these providers do have systems in place to catch it. You know, Jenny, we don't read too much about short selling and, and successful short selling, but I guess we have recently. These Hindenburg folks have been kind of busy. They, I guess the most notable uh, short report and short action they've taken is against Adani, an Indian company. So can you tell us a little bit about Hindenburg Research and, and kind of what their business is? Yeah, I mean, I think it's um, it's exactly like you said. They, they usually write these really big reports and then use social media and other ways to kind of distribute them and, and promote their ideas. Um, but they're betting against the stock's fall. So you have to kind of keep that in mind as you're reporting on them and reading these research that they definitely have an angle and, and have a financial incentive to cause this type of decline that we've seen in, in Block's uh, stock this week. Um, but you're absolutely right. Adani was their other big report that they did this year. Um, a couple of years ago, they had one out on Lordstown. Um, they had a lot on the EV market just a few years ago. So I think, um, you know, they're a relatively new player, but um, definitely have caused quite a stir every time they do take one of these very public formal positions. I'm very interested in your point that, you know, they're putting this all out on social media. It seems like these kinds of the kinds of angles on these stories move very, very quickly. I mean, do you have a sense that it moves a little bit too quickly? Um, I mean, I think, um, I guess as a journalist, I, you know, we cover the stock's drop and um, and try to explain that for readers. But yeah, I mean, I think everybody reading any research, you know, even if it's in, um, you know, someone who's not a short seller, sometimes there's folks who have uh, invested in the stock who put out their ideas and, and they want to see the stock go up. So they would have a bias too in some ways. So um, yeah, I think it's important whenever we're reading any research to kind of take into account what uh, financial incentives the author might have. And Jenny, following up on that, how's the track record of Hindenburg research been I mean I, I you know I, they were relatively unknown to me uh, until the Adani news broke because I was always think of Carson Block at whatever firm he's at um, as a prominent short seller um, what's the track record for Hindenburg it's um, a good question I mean I feel like especially with something like Adani I guess you know obviously they want to see the stock drop and, and in the in Adani case it absolutely dropped in the days and weeks following that report um, but I think ultimately it depends on, on when Hindenburg decides to sell their position and, and how much they're really hoping to net. And so, um, you know, it's always a long-term, you know, discussion. Like if, if Adani seems to turn things around or is able to bat back these allegations sufficiently, um, it'll be kind of interesting to see. But I think it's still probably too a little bit too early to tell. All right, Jenny, thank you so much. Uh, we appreciate that. Jenny Serain, she is a finance reporter for Bloomberg News. I was just checking her out. She's based in New York. But she's spending a few months over in the London uh, studio. You're listening to The Tape. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. All right, let's get uh, kind of an overlay. What's, you know, what are the stock pickers thinking? these days. I mean, good luck to them. Scott Harrison, he does this stuff for a living. He's a portfolio manager for Argent uh, Capital Management. Scott Harrison, you sit out there. You've got a lot of cross currents out there. We just finished up earnings. We'll have some more earnings kicking off in a few weeks. You got that. Earnings probably at risk. And you got central bankers whipping rates all over the place. And then you got a little bit of a bank. I'm not going to call it a crisis, but some angst out there about the global banking space. You're a portfolio manager. You get paid to put money to work. How do you put it all together? 
Yeah, thank you. I appreciate that. And, and I think the word you use there, angst, uh, is very appropriate for what we're seeing in the market today. Um, and, and for us, we start thinking about uh, crisis uh, well before it. Um, so we think about risk in our portfolio uh, is a constant part of our investment process. Um, but what I like to remind investors is that while the financial sector is getting all the attention for the right reasons, um, if the stock market itself goes down, there might be opportunities outside of financials um, that really we should be looking for. Um, and, and ultimately, uh, regardless of what's going on in the environment, there are going to be companies that can continue to compound cash flows um, and that come out of whatever's going on today, come out in a stronger position going forward. So that's really what we're doing. We're a, a fundamental uh, investor. Um, we are looking at company fundamentals. We're rolling up our sleeves. And we're really looking for those opportunities today that can compound cash flows as we look out over the next three to five years. So what are your favorite sectors now at this point? Sure. I, I look at last year and the two hardest hit areas of the stock market last year, consumer discretion and information technology. Um, I view the weakness of last year is potentially presenting opportunities today. Um, so semiconductors, for instance, uh, were one of the hardest hit areas in technology last year. Um, and that's an area that we've been increasing our exposure to this year. Um, and a company like Texas Instruments, for instance, um, is a, a name recently that's a added in the to past. Our, uh, that's correct. And, uh, you know, we've, we've added to that uh, to our investment strategy um, over the last several months. Um, and ultimately, what we're looking for are those companies that can offer attractive dividends, that can compound cash flows over time. Um, and that management team speaks our language. They believe that growing free cash flow per share is the best way to create value for shareholders. Um, and that's exactly what we believe in. So, so there are opportunities like Texas Instruments. Tractor Supply Company. I'm guessing the company is basically what the name says it is, but I don't think we have any tractor supply stores here in Manhattan. Tell us about this company. Okay, sure. That, that's another great opportunity, and that, that fits in the consumer discretionary uh, sector that I mentioned earlier. Um, tractor Supply actually started around the Great Depression in the 30s, um, and they started out offering exactly what the name says, supplies for tractors, um, but it's evolved into a leading retailer. And today, about half of the company's business comes from livestock or pets. Uh, more than 80% of the sales of the company has to do with immediate use products, um, and they are the dominant leader in rural markets. So we can think of Home Depot and Lowe's and those types of retailers in urban markets. Tractor Supply is the equivalent for the rural community, right. and they have a strong following. They they supply and and really target the rancher community, um, and there is no company that comes close to them in terms of market share and what they're able to do. Scott, I got to get out of New York City more often. This is a twenty five billion dollar market cap stock, and you put it up on the COMP function on the Bloomberg Terminal. I get a five year look at this stock. Over five years, this stock has compounded thirty. 2% a year versus the S&P of 11%. Scott, how come that, I've never heard of this thing? Well, that's, you know, you just said our, our favorite word there, which was compounding. Um, we believe that compounding cash flows is the greatest force in investing, and tractor supply has done just that. Um, through the pandemic alone, they've increased sales by over 70%. Um, there is no competitor that's close to them in their markets. Strong barriers, um, strong brand, and just a company that continues to execute. 
Um, and just a hallmark to them, while other retailers have struggled coming out of the pandemic and dealing with that transition, they have just executed phenomenally and continue to target that high single digit growth rate. Um, and compounding is exactly the right word that I would use when I think of tractor supply. Right. I think the closest one, Jennifer, to here, I'm looking at it, uh, Middletown, New Jersey. John? I have been in that store numerous times. Yeah. Love it. It's sort are of you, like. Are you like a hobby farmer, dude? Um, no, I mean they have uh, dog food and stuff like that. Okay. I needed supplies for my chainsaw. Of course, so. who doesn't need supplies? Indeed, for the I mean I was saying. This I mean, the other a day. tractor supply would describe it sort of like a less crowded Home Depot light. Okay, I'm going to check it out this weekend. All right. But with the with the hobby farmers, this is the question that fascinates me because genuine question. Food inflation in this country, pretty out of hand. I mean, egg prices. So my question to you, Scott, is do you see that there's an uptick in interest in the products of this company with, comp- with people saying, you know, I think I'm going to start growing my own food? Um, you know, that's a, a great question, and you're exactly right. Um, an interesting fact about Tractor Supply, um, about 20% of their customers own chickens. Um, and so we certainly have witnessed inflation when it comes to eggs. Um, and so this is what started out as a niche market many years ago is taking on greater and greater importance. And that's just one example of where it's showing up. All right. The over under on Tom Keene ever being within 100 miles of a tractor supply company store. I'm going to take, take taking the under on that real quick. 30 seconds. Garmin. They were the leaders in that mapping thing back in the day. But now I got Google Maps. Garmin still a thing? That's right. Um, you're exactly right. Uh, Garmin has transitioned itself. A uh, completely different company than the one that we would have known from 10 years ago. Uh, R&D has increased from 10% of sales to 20%. And they have products ranging from everything from your smart watches to your uh, auto infotainment, um, but even into the cockpits of airplanes. Garmin is just a dominant leader. Their R&D is second to none. And it's another one of those great companies. 3% dividend yield, compounding annually. And for shareholders, this is a company that offers attractive returns that we can own for the long term. 13% compounded annual return over the last five years. Again, the S&P about 10.6. So another outperformer there. Scott, great stuff. Really appreciate you throwing out some names there, some really interesting ones. Scott Harrison, Portfolio Manager. Argent Capital Management. I'm going to this tractor supply store. It's on Route 35 in Middletown. I can, I can hit that. Yeah. I'll see what they got in there. Next I'll to Staples, I think. Do a little store walk down there. You're listening to The Team. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern. On Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app. Or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts. Well, we have... Some banking turmoil out there in the marketplace. I'm not calling it a crisis, but clearly there's some turmoil punctuated by you know, a small number of banks actually failing, um, you know, most notably probably uh, Silicon Valley Bank. And, of course, that raises questions about you know, the availability of capital for, for companies and growing companies and get a sense of what that all means and how that might play out. We check to our next guest, Renia Sedholm, managing partner of the Sedholm Law Group. Renia, thanks so much for, for joining us here. Um, there's, a, I guess, a growing concern out there as we see some of the, the stress in the banking system that the availability of capital and maybe the cost of capital is going to become more difficult, particularly for smaller companies. What are you hearing from your clients? I mean, everyone has a concern about it, and those concerns are valid. Interest rates are 
increasing. They're inching higher. They were just raised uh, this week, in fact, and I think they'll continue to be raised. So everything is more expensive, and it's causing uh, the clients to burn through their money even quicker than anticipated. I mean, what do you see is the next likely move for a startup that's looking to raise some money? I think they're going to have to go um, searching for debt financing with companies that have relationships with multiple banks and trying their best. I mean, I think banks aren't going to be as aggressive as they were in the past. I was just speaking to a couple of banks. I can't you know, say their names on the radio, but they said they're putting all debt financing on hold right now. So some banks are, are out of that game, uh, the smaller regional ones. So I guess the the issue for, you know, we've seen a lot of depositors just pull their money out and put it into money market funds, but that doesn't do me any good if I'm looking to open up a, a new store or start a new business. Um, do you think this could become a, a real issue or is this something that maybe, you know, is, is kind of specific to a handful of banks? No, I think this is a real issue. I mean, one of the problems that startups face is that when they do look for funding through banks like SVB or any other bank, they're required to maintain a majority of their their money with that bank. Uh, it's sort of like collateral. It's not exactly collateral, but it's like collateral. And then they're left putting all their eggs in one basket. And so what I've been suggesting is to work with a bank that can offer you an insured cash swap or an insured bank deposit. And what that allows you to do is have a single bank relationship, but that bank then moves your money around to various banks within the network so that no single uh, bank is holding more than the FDIC insurance maximum. But I believe that maximum needs to go up. $250,000 may be a lot for the average person, but it's not for a startup and it's not for an average business. Do you have a sense that regulators would you know, take your advice and start looking at raising that? If regulators took my advice, the world would be a very different place. I don't think they're going to take my advice right now. Uh, You know, the government has been spending a lot of money since uh, 2020. The world and the global economy was essentially shut down. And we can all argue about whether or not that was a good idea. But uh, when you stop the economy from working and then uh, put an influx of money into the world so people can survive... It's sort of like an IOU that's coming due, and I think that's what we're finding. And there was really, um, like, no information available to the banks about the increase of the interest rates until it was close in time. And so banks like SVB that purchased, you know, long-term bonds with low interest rates, they were in a lot of hurt. They had to sell it at a loss, and that, you know, accelerated their demise. Uh, the ones that didn't hedge well and the ones that didn't manage the the duration are in trouble. But um, so, Rania, if if you have a client who's maybe a small business and maybe they're feeling, you know, a little bit of angst about kind of access to capital, cost of capital, what are you telling them to, to do during these times? I'm telling them uh, to work with wealth managers that have relationships at institutions that they may not. Uh, even know about, you know, some, you know, venture capital firms that may not be famous uh, in their space because, you know, you look at places like Y Combinator and I think 
they shut down an entire division. So a lot of what's happening also is all of these companies are going to the same, let's say, 10 players. And those 10 players are exhausted now. They have no, they have no cash, and they can't support the demand. So you have to diversify, not just with uh, your banking relationships by using these ICSs, but also diversify your relationships with banking professionals so you have access to capital uh, from other companies. One thing I wonder is, you know, a startup can consider a new strategy, but do you have any insight in how easy it is for a startup to execute a new funding strategy? For example, you know, around the real uh, worries about SVB, when we saw lines of customers out on the streets, you know, we were hearing that banks weren't able to take phone calls from their wire transfer departments because they were just so completely overloaded. Have you seen the mechanics of the banking system ease up a little bit, or are you still hearing that there's a a bunch of strain? I think it's still strained. Everybody is being extremely reactive. I mean, who can blame them? But reactivity never works in anybody's favor. And it looks like, at least in the short term, the large institutional uh, banks that we all know, the ones that have a bank on every block or every other block, are the safe bets right now. And in fact, some of them, you know, are purchasing uh, parts of these banks that are that have gone under. So, Renia, you know, we've heard about some of the, the the challenges out on the West Coast and Silicon Valley with some of those funds, some of those VC-funded companies and, and their relationships with SVB. Do you think that there's similar kind of exposure here on the East Coast and, and, and other parts of the country that have a big VC community? I think, yeah, I think this is a problem nationwide. And, and in some uh, cases, some of the banks that I think collapsed, like Signature, it was also due to their investment portfolios. They invested differently, but it was still the investment portfolio that brought them to this this place. And it's all about lack of diversification, really, when you get down to it. Okay, Renia Sedholm, thanks so much for joining us. Renia Sedholm, Managing Partner, Sedholm Law Group. Trading at Schwab is now powered by Ameritrade, giving you even more specialized support than ever before. Like access to the Trade Desk, our team of passionate traders ready to tackle anything from the most complex trading questions to a simple strategy gut check. Need assistance? No problem. Get 24-7 professional answers and live help and access support by phone, email, and in-platform chat. That's how Schwab is here for you, to help you trade brilliantly. Learn more at schwab.com slash trading. Success is more than a destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's dedication. It's fortitude. And it's the work, passion, and grit inside of us that comes before all recognition. That's what Stiefel has been doing for over 130 years. And it's why Stiefel is one of the fastest-growing wealth management firms in the country. And Stiefel goes beyond traditional wealth management to offer you a full suite of banking services, direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises, and a leading middle market investment bank. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel has built a company and culture unlike any firm on Wall Street. Because success is the drive it takes to keep pushing. It's the passion to keep investing. It's the best of each of us, made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Find a financial advisor at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel, Nicholas & Company, Incorporated. Member SIPC and NYSE. 
You're listening to The Tape. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. A lot of my friends have been telling me the next 10 years is the decade for India. And that kind of came into focus a little bit when we saw China just kind of shut down and then not really figure out their COVID policy, Jennifer. So amongst other reasons, but that just kind of came into focus when, when China kind of shut down a little bit. Uh, and we are very fortunate today to have a wonderful voice to kind of get us uh, to that story. Sanjeev Sanyal, he's an economist, he's an author, and he's a principal economic advisor to the Indian government and Prime Minister Modi. Uh, and he joins us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. Sanjeev, thanks so much for joining us. We appreciate you coming in. If you were to give me the elevator pitch for <laughs> India, okay, what would it be? Uh, well, it's the by some margin the fastest growing major economy in the world. Um, its financial system, unlike what's happening in much of the world, is rock solid. Um, and uh, you know, if the world was not going through so much turmoil, it could easily be growing at eight percent plus. I guess one thing I'm very interested to hear you talk about is India's manufacturing policy, because this has been a very big focus for a very long time. Do you feel that you're getting to where you need to be with that? I think you were targeting 25% of GDP. Do I have that right? Well, uh, if you're looking at manufacturing, uh, we would be looking at something in the early 20s, yes. But I think rather than take the percentage, the problem here is the following. India has an extremely competitive services sector. And we probably the first economy ever which has gone directly from agriculture to services in the sense that almost 60 plus percent of our economy is services. Um, more, uh, our exports are now more than half of it is services, probably the only developing country in the world where that is the case. So we are very oriented towards services, very competitive technology of various kinds, but other things as well. Um, What's happening is is that that creates a disbalance in our economy in that you have a decent-sized manufacturing sector, but uh, while it has transformed itself over the last decade, and we do have some areas where we are very competitive, like automobiles, uh, pharmaceuticals, many of the generic pharmaceuticals that buy here are from India. But in a general principle, we we have not been as visible uh, in in the supply chains as, say, China is. And so we want to correct this imbalance. Uh, you know, a large economy needs to have all cylinders firing, and manufacturing hasn't quite been uh, an area that's done quite so well. What are the major areas of focus for development for India from this government? What, what is it really focusing on over the, next, over the longer term? So the first thing is, uh, given the turbulence, make sure there is no macroeconomic stress on the system. So we are conservative on macroeconomic stress. We, you know, we can easily grow this economy at 8%. We'd be quite happy with 65 right now, given what's going on in the world. Meanwhile, we are building out, doing a massive build-out of infrastructure. Uh, we did not blow out our budgets during the COVID crisis. Uh, we were quite restrained. But since then, we have dramatically expanded out our uh, uh, infrastructure uh, uh, budgets. This year, we are going to see a 33% increase in our infrastructure spending. And this is on top of several years of increase. Um, What type of infrastructure are you focusing on? A lot of physical infrastructure. So roads and highways, airports, uh, stuff like that. Uh, If you take Mumbai, for example, 
it's probably right now the largest concentration of cranes in the world. <laughs> it's, a, it's, it's basically a construction site. Uh, not a pleasant place to live, right, right. Uh, I can assure you, because everything is dug up. But in a couple of years' time, it will have a completely brand new metro system. It will have a completely new airport, uh, links to the mainland, uh, coastal road, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. And that's happening to many other cities in, the, in India as well. One thing I'm wondering about this great construction push that you have and this great infrastructure push is how much of that are you looking towards the outside world for investment? How much inward investment are you looking for? And one thing I want you to talk particularly about, if you don't mind, is also the semiconductor push that has been a great feature of talks between India and the U.S. So the, the infrastructure push itself is largely domestically driven. Of course, we do have... Uh, large investors from the rest of the world, uh, especially sovereign wealth funds, investing into it, but mostly funded domestically and executed domestically. Uh, we have the engineering capacities, large companies like Larson and Tubro, etc., which can do it. So this is not where we we are really looking at the foreign uh, companies coming in. Um, we really want, as I said, to insert ourselves into the global supply chains um, and. Uh, many of the companies, uh, large international companies, already have something in India, partly for the domestic market or because they have the services outsourcing, whether it's design or their accounts department, etc. They're already in India. So the, what we want them to do is now to add their manufacturing bit, and that's the point we were making earlier, is to come and do that in India. So we design the chips, but we don't actually manufacture them. Mm-hmm. So... We want that to move. Now, of course, for a variety of reasons, some of it is moving out of China. We want some of it to come to India. One, because it puts us in the map, in the supply chain, but it also for another reason. One of the things we discovered during the COVID crisis is that if you rely entirely on a single foreign source, um, it can suddenly shut down for all kinds of reasons. It could be a pandemic, it could be geopolitical reasons, whatever it is. You've got to be careful about this. And so we are very keen that at least some basic things like chips do get manufactured in India. Um, For example, uh, in 2021, we discovered we have this huge automobiles industry, very competitive, but can't get chips. So the whole thing shuts down effectively. So we think that at least some basic things, some basic chemicals, basic things like chips, they have, we have to have some capacity onshore. I believe the U.S. is doing something similar mm-hmm. as well with simil- because of similar reasons, not just geopolitical, but just from a resilience perspective makes sense. What are the major challenges that India has and the government has in executing their growth plan? You've always had one of the world's largest populations. That population has, for the longest time, been very young and educated. You've had a lot of wind at your back. What's held in your back if you th- believe it has been held back? Or, and what are some of the challenges going forward? So the wind on our back is really taking off. So yes, we have just, I think, this month gone past China as the world's largest population. But do remember the average Indian is some 28 years old. Yeah. And so it's only now that we are seeing the proportion of population of working age exploding out. And we are still far away from the time when we go into the aging phase. So we have now about 25, 30 years where a very significant and growing proportion of our population will be of working age. And unlike China, which had a very spiky demographic because mm-hmm. of the one-child policy, ours right. is much smoother. Yes. So we, we will take a good leisurely 30 years over this. Right. So this is an opportunity. Okay. It's, a, it's not a sufficient reason to, be, uh, to, be, to see high growth, but it certainly is a necessary condition for seeing 
you know, year-on-year growth without the labor market tightening. So we are in that place. We will be there for 25, 30 years. Um, but what we now need to do is to make sure, as I said, the infrastructure is there, the physical infrastructure. Uh, also, another thing that India is doing somewhat differently from others is because we are going through this transition in the post-digital world. Remember, everybody else, including the U.S. or China more recently, etc., happened during or before the digital age. We are going through this in the digital age. So far more than many other countries, we are actually putting everything online in multiple mm-hmm. ways. For example, every Indian has got an Aadhaar number, uh, which is like a social security number, but it is much more sophisticated than that. I mean, you can, you can use your thumbprint, face recognition, etc. Now, this means that you can basically use this to get bank accounts, uh, get social security payouts, uh, insurance. Um, very quickly, we might even allow you to go through airports using it. Uh, and so on. So there are many, many such things that we are creating uh, public, digital public goods, uh, which allows many people to do things that would have been done up with a country at a much later phase in their development. One question. A tailwind in interest in India has been the closing in China, the COVID policy, the pressure on the technology industry. As that eases, what do you think that does to interest in India? Well, I mean, the, the issues which about China is not, uh, you know, about just the closures at yeah. that point in time. There are far wider issues relating, of course, to geostrategic issues, and, uh, but also to uh, what has been understood, I think, by many people that, you know, uh, th- there's no rule of law as far as, for example, the treatment of large businesses is concerned, what happened to Alibaba, for example, and yep. so on. So, you have to understand that we, we therefore are much more in sync with a rule of law approach. We are the world's largest democracy, uh, much more transparent, may look more messy, but in the longer run, mm-hmm. you, you get what you see. Yep. And so I think this fascination for an authoritarian uh, system has, I think, somewhat eased off. In a sense, this is our opportunity to, to build in on, on top of that. Um, and that, to some extent, is happening. We are a member of something called the Quad. You may be aware of that, where there is an alliance between Japan, Australia, India, and the U.S., um, and that is building out on, on, uh, uh, to the Indo-Pacific area. And in the West Asia, there is another uh, uh, group called I2U2 between India, U.S., Israel, and the UAE. Yep. So there are new geostrategic configurations that are emerging out of this, and we intend to play an important role in that. Lastly, before we let, let you go, I think people all around the world learned a lot about their healthcare system during this whole COVID uh, uh, issue. What did India learn about its healthcare system? What are the challenges and what are the opportunities, I guess? Well, um, obviously, like everybody else, um, COVID hit us hard, particularly in the second Delta wave. Uh, but on the other hand, uh, we also demonstrated that we could create our own vaccines and mm-hmm. we could go out and the 1.4 billion people, that's about a billion, billion of them were eligible, i.e. Yep. they're old enough to get uh, vaccinated. And we delivered uh, a billion vaccines and did it again uh, with the boosters. So, um, you know, we have global level capacities, both in terms of production of vaccines, but also to delivering it. And importantly, we know exactly which day, which particular vaccine was given to everybody because the whole thing, is, as I said, is digitally yeah. uh, set up. So 
Um, oh, you don't have those little cards? <laughs> no, we don't have cards. It's online on my cell phone. And it's literally written hand. It, don't get me started. Yeah. But anyway, yeah. we got it done. We have we a all, digital system. We all figured on it us. out. We yeah. all figured it out. Yeah. Uh, Sanjeev Sanyal, thank you so much for joining us. You're listening to The Tape. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg. 1130. We'll get right to our next guest, Ali Urman, genomic revolution analyst at ARK Investment. Now, Ali, I've been in the research business for more than 30 years. I've managed research departments. I don't think I've ever seen the term genomic revolution analyst. Let's just start there. What do you do for a living? <laughs> thanks so much, and thanks for having me on. So genomics is really an interdisciplinary approach. Uh, it's basically a field of biology, and we think about the structure, you know, the evolution, and, and different mappings of how we edit genomes. And I think what's really interesting about ARC is that we have analysts that focus on specific areas of expertise rather than strong financial backgrounds. So I can say for myself, I previously conducted cancer research at Sloan Kettering Cancer Center and Montefiore Medical Center. I then became really interested in the intersection between AI and medicine. And so I went to IBM Watson Health. Um, and so being able to have all of this sort of previous knowledge on cancer, epidemiology, biostatistics, and artificial intelligence, and how those things will propel and change medicine uh, makes me really uh, able to look at companies and decipher sort of which ones may be win or loser situations within the marketplace. This is fascinating, and I have hundreds of questions, but I'm just going to start with one. <laughs> going back to what you were saying about your involvement with artificial intelligence, can you look ahead a little bit for us? What kind of new breakthroughs is AI making possible here? Yeah, so actually, this is going to be a topic that Kathy and I will be speaking about at a Forbes Women's Summit soon. Uh, it's a really important topic that you're bringing up. We think that several tools are going to be really important to accelerate drug discovery, and I think AI is, is really primed to be one of them. So one example that we're seeing now, and I think will only get better and better with time, uh, so that would be like neural network-based algorithms. So that would be things like AlphaFold. That was announced, if you remember, a while ago by Alphabet, which is a subsidiary of DeepMind, um, and that can actually predict protein folding. So that was very exciting. It also had an open-source database of protein structures that was powered uh, by AlphaFold2. And based on their amino acid sequences, the database can predict the 3D structure of about, uh, you know, almost all known human proteins. So that's at 350,000. So our research really suggests that these neural network-based algorithms could reduce these research and development costs, which get very high for our companies. And we know in different macro, in difficult macro environment conditions right now, and when it's a little bit harder to raise, um, keeping those costs low but increasing efficiency is really important. So we think that this could increase the value of clinical trial assets. We think it could increase the probability of clinical trial phase transition. So, you know, a, a tactical example of this maybe is that so enabling this technology could probably shorten the average time spent in preclinical experimentation. Um, and so the duration typically in preclinical testing from discovery to phase one is about four years. And based on our model assumptions, that number is going to drop to three years. Mm. And then with these sort of AI neural network-based algorithms, that could drop even further to two years. 
Um, so we think that would be, you know, a major cost saving and, and really increase efficiency. Alec, what are some of the companies or types of companies in your uh, uh, ETF and, and, and why are they there? Yeah, so one of the things that we focus on and a lot of the things that I cover are things that are going to be called precision therapies. So precision therapies are these very disruptive novel medicines. At ARC, we focus on disruptive innovation, so no real surprise there. We believe that these type of companies are going to impact the way we practice medicine. So one interesting change that I'd love to highlight is that Previously, you know, before the Human Genome Project, before we understood more sort of of our body's mechanics, we focused on creating these chronic therapies, right? So therapies that we would need to continuously take to manage symptoms. But we didn't actually address the specific cause of disease. So with things like one example would be gene editing, where you actually change, modify, add you know, delete some form of your DNA. So gene editing then could address the underlying causes of those diseases. And then it can also be used in the future, sort of like in changing our healthcare approach. So in an upstream approach, whereas now we have a downstream approach, meaning that you get cancer, we treat your cancer. In an upstream approach, it would mean that before you get cancer, we look to see what genes you have that may cause cancer and how we can address them before you actually even get the cancer. So we also see that, you know, these therapies are being tested more and more in the clinic. So we're seeing that gene editing clinical trials are basically tripling. Uh, We think that could happen by the end of the decade, which shows sort of the way medicine is moving. Uh, That would also accelerate probably first approvals. And we think that it's possible that the first approval could even come as soon as this year. When you look at where these innovations are coming from, do you have a sense that it comes from big pharma or is it more a story for little startups? We think there's room in both. Uh, in our portfolio in ARKG, we actually do have large cap pharma as well as these smaller cap companies. Uh, we have a long-term approach. And so we look at the companies that are most likely to be able to capitalize and create these therapeutics, uh, whether they're large cap or small cap. Uh, one of the ways we do that is we have a 15% CAGR or hurdle. Um, so all of our companies really have a lot of room to grow. We also have a very rigorous um, sort of company modeling and framework for analyzing our companies. So we focus on this sort of bottoms up and tops down research process. So all of our research is actually open sourced. We give it away for free. So if you ever want to check out any of our research, uh, you can just go on to arc-invest.com. We also do a big ideas deck um, every year, which is sort of our, our best ideas of this year. And for this year, we focused on precision therapies and molecular diagnostics from a healthcare perspective. Um, but going back to our framework, so we look at a particular market segment and we figure out we typically use like a rights law, cost decline curve, and we try to figure out, okay, how is this company or how is this segment going to decrease costs but still increase productivity? And then we really find the companies that we think are most likely to change the world with the progress. And then we, of course, always have our score for the companies that so we have a framework for that where we look at things like moat, product leadership, uh, you know, execution, uh, people management and culture, et cetera. Fascinating, fascinating stuff. Ali Ehrman, uh, thank you so much for joining us. Really appreciate uh, getting uh, your thoughts on this uh, complex issue, but a fascinating issue and certainly an opportunity for investors uh, to do it. And you can do it at the ARKG, which is the ARK 
uh, genome uh, fund there. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at P.T. Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio. To address our new climate reality, the world needs radical solutions. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment, hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.